0: Well, good morning. It's always so wonderful. I feel so humbled to share God's word with you. And I do trust and pray that you had a wonderful Thanksgiving surrounded by family and perhaps treasured friends, thanking God for his many blessings. If you're like me, you have the tradition of going around the table at some point during the dinner and giving God thanks for at least one blessing, his provision uh, in your life this year. And so, what about you? For what are you most thankful for this year? And to whom are you most grateful? Well, over the last few years, the Sunday following Thanksgiving has also been the first Sunday in Advent. It's just the way the calendar falls. But this year we've been given the gracious gift to celebrate Thanksgiving and God's goodness all weekend long. And so this morning we'll consider what the scriptures teach about a living a life of overflowing with gratitude. And so as we prepare to read his word, would you pray once more with me? Gracious God, how thankful we are for the gift to gather as your people And so as we now turn and open to your word, we pray that you would bring it home to our hearts and minds with clarity and compassion, with conviction, and with saving power. For it's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Well, our passage comes from Colossians chapter 3, beginning at verse 15, and if you're following along in a pew Bible, you can find it on 1,835. And if you have your Bible, I'd love for you to keep it open on your laps as we make our way through this short passage. Listen now to God's holy word. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is God's holy word. Thanks be to God. Well, it was December of 1914, and Thomas Edison's great laboratories in West Orange, New Jersey, were almost entirely destroyed by fire. In one night, Edison lost a reported $2 million worth of equipment and the record of much of his life's work. Edison's son, Charles, frantically ran about trying to find his father. And when he finally came upon him, his face in the glow of the fire and his white hair blowing in the wind, he would later write, My heart ached for my dad. He was no longer young, and everything he was doing was being destroyed. But then he spotted me and he said, Son, where's your mother? Find her and bring her here. She's never seen anything like this, and she never will again as long as she lives. And the next morning, walking around the charred embers of so many of his hopes and dreams, Edison mused, you know, son, there's great value in disaster. All of our mistakes are burned up. Thank God we can begin all over again. Wow. Well, many, many of us would agree that was quite an extraordinary response. What a perspective on life. To be that thankful in the midst of such tragedy would seem for most of us nearly impossible. And yet we know that the scriptures speak very strongly to the Christian about living a life of gratitude. The word thanks appears over 150 times in both the Old and New Testaments, And the phrase to give thanks appears 33 times in the New Testament alone. But how does one cultivate a heart of thankfulness? Well, it's always helpful to have just a bit of context as we unwrap the riches in our word. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Colossian church from a prison cell in Rome, probably in the years A.D. 60 or 61. And uh, we believe that... um, this small church plant was a part of his third missionary journey where he had his good friend and colleague Epaphras with him. And so Colossae is located about uh, in in modern-day Turkey. It was in Asia Minor, and it was about 100 miles east of Ephesus. And so while they were stationed in Ephesus, the Apostle Paul most likely sent Epaphras to his hometown of Colossae and to share the good news of the gospel with those folks. But following the founding of this church, false teachers arrived and began teaching that there were other ways to know God and to be known by him, thus diminishing the work and person of Christ. In fact, Paul in chapter 2 calls this false teaching hollow and deceptive philosophies. However, in God's perfect design... Uh, this was not wasted because it actually served to further the gospel in that Paul was forced to put in writing this doctrine of grace known as the person and work of Christ. And so what he does is he picks up his pen and he writes a letter to the people of Colossae. And what's so interesting about the letter is that Paul combats the philosophies not by naming them and refuting them one by one, but by simply focusing on the supremacy of Christ. He writes in chapter one, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through blood shed on the cross. And so he grounds them in true teaching about who Jesus is and what he came to do. And then in our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul points to three evidences of grace at work in the life of a Christian. He writes, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, One of the marks of a supernaturally changed heart is peace. The search for peace sometimes demands all we can give it, doesn't it? Throughout our lives, we often set goals or make plans and choices based on whether or not we believe we'll have peace or find contentment. However, our sense of peace and contentment is often fleeting and dependent on circumstances, things we can't control. But the Apostle Paul is not speaking of peace that changes or is contingent on anything. He's taking us deeper to a kind of peace that isn't reliant on anyone or anything. The kind of peace that's inexhaustible, unshakable, immovable, steady, and strong. He writes, let the peace of Christ rule. And that word rule is literally translated as umpire because in those days, in the ancient times, there were umpires who ruled over games and these umpires ruled with an iron fist and would throw out the troublemakers. And so when the apostle Paul is saying, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, he's not describing a vague intervention, but a power that comes into your life and acts, marching around the ramparts of your heart like a guard, warding off any attacks. There's a similar passage in Philippians 4. Perhaps it's one you've memorized. It reads, The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then he writes, For I've learned the secret of being content in whatever the circumstances, whether in plenty or in want. And so we see these three principles, three realities really at work. First, the peace of Christ is not a general condition, but a living power that comes into your life through faith. Secondly, the peace of Christ rules. It's not ruled by circumstances or anything else but is ruled from within. In John 14, Jesus says, Peace I give you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives. And he's saying there is a worldly kind of peace that's always fleeting and will always leave you wanting more. Each of us can identify with that, can't we? But Jesus is saying, My peace I give you, not as the world gives. So don't fall for the counterfeit peace. In essence, he's saying, don't spend your life trying to manufacture peace that can change within a moment's notice or is tied to circumstances or outcomes you can't control. But instead, allow my peace to transform your heart, mind, and soul from the inside out. And that leads us to the third principle. There is no peace from God. Without peace with God. In Romans 5, the Apostle Paul writes Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. In the Old Testament, the word for peace was shalom. It was a greeting, hello, goodbye, I'll see you later, or peace be with you. But in the New Testament, that peace takes on a person, and the person is Jesus Christ. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Do you know this unshakable peace? And then he ends this verse with the phrase, and be thankful. You know, it's interesting Wherever the Apostle Paul talks about peace, it's usually in the context of thankfulness. And we've seen a a few examples of that already in our passages this morning. But sadly, the opposite is also true. In all of his letters, Paul is very careful to distinguish between a humanity without God and a people who have come to know God in and through their faith in Jesus Christ Speaking of the last days, Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, ungrateful, without love, unforgiving, and without self-control. And the list goes on. Wow. Ingratitude keeps some pretty bad company. What keeps us from being thankful? and experiencing the kind of peace of Christ that rules in our hearts. Well, according to Paul, the one simple word is pride. And when that's the case, when, when we are so curved in on ourselves, completely focused on the autonomous self, there's no room for the love of God. There's no room for what he's doing in my life or others' lives or in the world, because the only person I'm concerned with is me. Who am I? What am I becoming? What have I achieved? How can I further posture myself and my place? And you can be sure that wherever pride sets in, it will always stand as a barrier to genuine gratitude. But not only does pride pollute our internal self-talk, it becomes evident in our relationships. You know, evidently, this is what was going on in the church in Colossae. Not only were they confused about the vertical relationship, their relationship with who Jesus is and what he came to do, but that affected then their relationships with others. Because he writes all about this, um, this new self and how we are to be in relationship with others. And so it is with us. Perhaps someone is especially gracious and kind to you, perhaps rewards you with words of affirmation or a gift. And your response is, yeah, I really was good. I kind of deserved that. Or worse, I was expecting more. I think I did a lot better than that. But when the peace of Christ rules your heart, humility dethrones the anxious and prideful self and opens the door to genuine thankfulness. There are literally hundreds of examples that Paul uses to illustrate his point, or actually that are used throughout Scripture, but I'll use just one from the Old Testament. Think back and remember the Old Testament picture of Nebuchadnezzar, who was like the king of self-absorption. And there's this amazing description that he writes, or is, he's quoted in the book of Daniel, He's sitting there in Babylon, the king, looking over his empire and saying to himself, you know, this really is amazing. I've done an incredible job building my empire. And the quote is, is not this great Babylon, which I have built as a royal residence by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty? I, me, mine. But then something radical happens to him. God intervenes and shows him what he's really like, holds a mirror up, turns his life upside down, and everything changes for old King Nebuchadnezzar. But in time, by God's gracious provision, he restores Nebuchadnezzar to the throne, brings him back to the palace. And we see in Daniel 4, this time, Nebuchadnezzar surveys everything and he says, his dominion is everlasting dominion and he does according to his will now i nebuchadnezzar praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble what a great contrast from i me mine in an attitude of self-sufficiency from I don't need anyone else. I'm certainly not going to be accountable to anyone else. All the way over to an attitude of genuine gratitude. His dominion is everlasting. He does according to his will. And I will praise and exalt him, the King of heaven. You know, in my role, I often get to see our congregation through the eyes of visitors and new members. And I often wonder... What the reaction is, will people find us to be grateful and thankful? Do they say, you know, they really are. I'm really struck by this kind of exuberant sense of thankfulness among this crowd. And of course, it's in context, uh, excuse me, contrast between what our lives once were and what's, once what they now be, have become in Christ. Can we be too thankful Does our life demonstrate gratitude? There's a poem that's become famous written by a teen who demonstrates wisdom well beyond his years. It was spring, but it was summer I wanted the warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted the color of leaves and the cool dry air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted the beautiful snow, and the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was spring I wanted, the warmth and blossoming of nature. I was a child, but it was adulthood I wanted, the freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted, to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted, the youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle age I wanted. The presence of mind without limitations. My life was over, and I never got what I wanted. My life was over, and I never got what I wanted. It was Pascal, the mathematician, who said, in the heart of man, there is a God-shaped void that only he can fill, It can't be filled with anything else and be truly contented. So what keeps us from being truly thankful? Perhaps, like the people that the Apostle Paul was writing to in Colossae, we find ourselves believing that God is not enough. Contentedness is a cousin of thankfulness. And this passage teaches us perhaps even a product of it. So the first evidence of the grace of Christ at work in your heart is the peace that leads to thankfulness. But then he takes us further. Verse 16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And the very simple principle here is, The peace of Christ rules where the word of Christ dwells. What dwells in your heart this morning Right before our passage at the beginning of chapter 3, the Apostle Paul goes into one of those therefore kind of moments where he says, if you believe everything I've taught you or everything I've written uh, up until now, this is how you'll live. And he says he's sharing that those in Christ have a new address. And this is what he says. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. He's saying you have a new address that Christ has bought you. And then he goes on to say, So, Where I'm taking you, where you now live, take off everything that won't serve you. He calls them filthy rags. Put to death whatever belonged to your earthly nature, impurity, greed, immorality, evil desires. And then he says, but as God's chosen people, instead you are holy and dearly loved. Clothe yourselves with your new nature. You are compassion." kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, and peace. It sounds a lot like the fruit of the Spirit to me. And it's as if God is saying, my people are to be a distinctive people. I will be your God, and you will be my people. And by my grace, you are to show my goodness to the world. This is what you are to be. The old heart, the heart of stone, is easily angered, speaks speaks words of rage and malice. But as the word of Christ dwells richly among us, the new heart teaches, admonishes, and sings words of thankfulness. A Christ-centered community is a singing community, as hearts are overwhelmed in worship of a holy God, and he promises to inhabit the praises of his people. So what do you allow to dwell in your heart? There are some who relive or rehearse every heartbreaking moment that they've experienced for the rest of their lives. Let the word of Christ dwell in you. I had a friend in college who had quite the annoying habit that whenever she would sit down to read a book or watch a movie, she would read the last chapter first or only watch movies that she knew how they were going to end. And, of course, this was annoying for those of us are her closest friends because she would inevitably spill the ending for us. But for the Christian, this is an incredible gift. We do know the end of the story. We have read the last chapter. Death is dead. Life is won. The shepherd becomes the sacrificial lamb to rescue his flock. What do you allow to inform your heart and mind? These passages describe the work of grace by Christ. And God intends for us to be the soundtrack for our lives. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. I will extol the Lord at all times. Who shall separate you from the love of Christ? He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. What word of Christ dwells in your heart? I'd love to know. By his grace, the peace of Christ rules where the word of Christ dwells. And that is the result of that is a resounding gratitude. And that leads us to our last verse, verse 17. Whatever you do, let's read it together. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In the ancient world, a name had potency, and it carried weight and authority. And today we still speak of a magistrate as acting under jurisdiction of the law. And so as Paul summarizes these graces at work in the life of a Christian, doing all, whether word or deed, had a reverence to it. And not only that, an obedience to it. And so in Christ, we live between two pronouncements. The Lord Jesus has come, and come, Lord Jesus. As we approach this Advent season, may we be ever thankful for the life and death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, for his daily provision in our lives, and for the call that he's given us to live that gratitude out loud. The church has been given an incredible gift. May we never, ever take it for granted. And let's read these remaining verses together out loud. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your incredible word. Look upon us With grace, we pray, satisfy the longings of our lives with yourself. Turn us again and again to the truth of your word, to recalibrate our walking and thinking, rejoicing and thanking. For it's in your precious name we pray. Amen.